Greet you in Jesus' name this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. I was reading some sermons this week, and uh, the one of them I mentioned in a Come Prepared to Share service entitled Nevertheless, and another one that I ran across, Hell's Best Kept Secret by Ray Comfort. I'm not sure who preached the uh, Nevertheless sermon, but anyhow, I read those two this week, and I... And I uh, Something in a statement in the Nevertheless sermon struck me, and that is what we're going to talk about this morning. We'll start out with the account in Luke 5, 1 to 11. The account of launching out into the deep. It came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would launch out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon, that's supposed to be draft, isn't it? Yeah, okay. That just hit me. I used to say draught. Somebody corrected me. Draft. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draft of the fishers which they had taken. And so was James and John, and the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now I'm going to read just a portion of this sermon, nevertheless. <clears throat> One morning, as Simon returned to his usual location on the beach after a whole night's unsuccessful fishing, he saw quite a crowd collected. <clears throat> Doubtless it was that young Nazarene again who, was, who had such a captivating way with him. Simon could have wished he might be able to unload a good catch from his boat. It was rather humiliating to come in empty-handed. However, he was no worse off than the others. He was not the only empty boat that morning. Simon might be unsuccessful, but he had plenty of company. And perhaps he found some consolation in that. Most people do. When they reflect that they are not getting anywhere in the business of living, they glance at their neighbors and say, Oh, well, 
I'm not so worse off than the rest of them, which in the main is true, but does not solve the problem proposed by our dissatisfied souls. Again, we must be cautious here about overemphasizing the details of this story, but it is almost impossible to pass by one little remark in the narrative as reported by Luke. The fisherman, Simon as usual most conspicuous of all, drew up near shore and began washing their nets. That explained what kind of fishing they had been doing. They had been raking their nets through the weeds and muck of their favorite shoals. The crowd swarmed down to the water edge and Jesus stepped into Simon's boat and from that vantage continued to talk to the people. We are not explicitly informed about the subject of the address, but it is not unreasonable to conjecture that the talk had to do with the larger issues of the spiritual life. One of the distinguishing features of the greatest preacher who ever taught was the ease and skill of which he adapted the little the little commonplaces at hand to purposes of illustration. Jesus always knew what the crowd was thinking about and chose his luminous parables from such materials. A throng of hungry thousands in the desert to whom he, the uppermost thought is, what shall we eat, is challenged to solve its own problem by a spectacular feat of sharing what little there is at hand. A company of nationalists hoping to get Jesus in trouble with the Romans invites him to discuss the problem of taxation. And he says, hand me a coin. And he talks about the coin. When his disciples comment about a barren fig tree, the episode is good for an intensive discussion of responsibility and bringing forth fruit commensurate with one's capacity. How natural indeed if today... While Simon and Andrew and John and James threshed the water with their muddy, weed-tangled nets, in full view of this audience made up of persons presumably acquainted with the fishing industry, how natural if Jesus were to use these muck-stained nets as his point of departure. That was the trouble with life. That was the trouble with our life, wasn't it? We never really got out into it far enough, always too close to the shore. The deep things of the Spirit were usually left unexplored. Why did we not get along better with our neighbors? Why did we allow little worries to menace our peace and poise? Why did we depend on hard-driven bargains and short waits to furnish our prosperity? Why did we argue and haggle and generally scour the mucky shoals of life looking for values and lack the courage and the faith to let down the net into deep water? always looking for good purchases of, of things that the moth and rust would devour, but rarely searching for the sublime treasure deep in the heart of a friend. Always concerned about the wheat crop, but always never, but almost never pausing to consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. And this is a statement that caught my attention. Always thinking of life in terms of appetite, and almost never thinking of it in terms of aspiration. Now, had Jesus been himself a fisherman, perhaps it would have been easier for Simon to listen to this kind of talk. 
Simon was entirely respectful, but it's easy to think he took no stock in the deep water theory. He says, We have toiled all night and have taken nothing. And I suppose we're at liberty to suspect that the rest of the sentence, which he thought, but did not say for courtesy's sake, may have run something like this. If we, who have grown up on this lake and learned to fish when we were little boys and know all the habits of the fish and where they are likely to be found at given times under certain weather conditions, have nothing to show for a whole night's work, it goes without saying that a carpenter who has never caught a fish in his life would be a poor counselor. Nevertheless, said Simon, if you say so, we will put the nets down deeper. It was this, nevertheless, of Simon Peter's that made a great man of him in the days that were to follow. Nevertheless is a very important word in the vocabulary of heroism. Later, when the great crowds of curiosity-seeking country people, having heard Jesus propose a way of life so exacting that they began to leave by scores, it seemed as if the master had undone his influence over them. And even the little group of disciples themselves were disturbed, bewildered, and disappointed. It was Simon Peter's rallying cry that saved the day for them. Thing look, things looked bad for the new gospel that afternoon, and we, and we appeared to be losing ground. But nevertheless, thou art the Christus, thou hast the words of life. It is a word that carries the tang of high adventure, reckless valor, and the faith that overcomes the world. If it be possible, pray Jesus, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, we are creatures of blind fate, growls the cynic, and it's silly to look for divine guidance. Nevertheless, replies the voice of faith, we are in our Father's care. You cannot change God's plans for you, shouts the cynic. Your prayers are ridiculous. Nevertheless, replies the confident voice, I shall continue in, to ask in faith, believing. What's this nonsense about finding prosperity by giving one's hard-earned things away, sneers the cynic, and winning battles by refusing to fight and seeking a crown by bearing a cross? Nevertheless, answers the adventurers, nevertheless. You have fished the shoals all your life, shout the fishermen. You know there's nothing out there in the dark water. Nevertheless, said Simon, at his word, I will lower the net. So, according to Luke's account, Simon Peter moved out into deeper water. Contrary to the best traditions among fishermen, there was a great catch out in the deep water, so great that all the other boats in the vicinity were hailed to come and help drag in a net that wasn't used to such prosperity. We mustn't try to load this episode about the good days fishing with modern instances whose relations thereunto may be of the sketchiest, short, sketchiest sort. However, the comment of the Master himself justifies our feeling that there is a significant allegory here. When the jubilant fishermen, flushed with success, have returned with their cargo, Jesus says, 
Henceforth ye shall fish for men. Always thinking of life in terms of appetite and almost never thinking of it in terms of aspiration. What is your aspiration? An appetite according to the dictionary, is any of the instinctive desires necessary to keep up organic life. What it takes to keep living, to be here, healthy this morning, whatever. An instinctive desire, it's built in. You don't have to work for it, it's just there. If you don't eat, if you don't eat for three days, you're going to be hungry. We ate brunch at 9.30, I don't know, 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock or something yesterday morning, and Mary Sue and Rye took off to church. We got back at 3 o'clock, and Rye says, I'm ravening hungry. He didn't have to work on that. That's an appetite. It's just natural. However, an aspiration is a strong desire to achieve something high or great. In the sermon, Hell's Best Kept Secret, Ray Comfort says that if we preach repentance without explaining what sin is and does, this is not a direct quote because it would take way too long to read it, but anyhow, I condense this. If we preach repentance without explaining what sin is and does, people will repent horizontally but not vertically. They will repent in order to get what their appetite desires. Peace, joy, love, fulfillment, lasting happiness, etc. Instead of repenting in order to flee from the wrath to come because their sin has separated them from Almighty God. And Ray Comfort says, I preached for years and could not figure out for the life of me why when people respond to the gospel there was no tears. He said, and the reason why they didn't cry was because I was preaching an appetite gospel. You get, this is what you get. You get this, you get that, you get something else. And everybody wants to have all this stuff. But he never told them that their sin has separated them from God. That's why if we preach an, abs, uh, an, uh, an appetite gospel we are doomed for failure to, from the start. And if we live a life of appetite, Christianity, we are doomed from the start. It's all horizontal. It has nothing to do with God. But you notice, Peter, when that tremendous miracle happened... He didn't say, well, thank you for all the fish. This is really great. I'm glad I'm hanging around you, Jesus, because, you know, I'm making a lot of money now. Well, health and wealth gospel. He said, you know what he said? Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He looked right up there. The fish were beside the point. He said, depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. 
For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draft of the fishes they had taken. He didn't repent. He didn't say that because of something he wanted. He said it because he understood the greatness and the holiness of Jesus Christ and his undoneness at the knees of Jesus. It says he fell at the knees of Jesus. In the book Attributes of God by A.W. Tozer, he says this, We need to repent of unlikeness, of unholiness in the presence of the holy, of self-indulgence in the presence of the selfless Christ, of harshness in the presence of the kind Christ, of hardness in the presence of the forgiving Christ, of lukewarmness in the presence of the zealous Christ burning like a fiery flame, of worldliness and earthliness in the presence of the heavenly Christ, I think we ought to repent. That's what he wrote. And that's where, that's where Simon Peter was. He, he looked at Jesus and he was so unlike Jesus that he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, I, 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 I'm a sinful person. I, I, I can't even feel comfortable in your presence. There's so much difference. All, all this whole sermon was in the context of revival meetings next week, too. And, and, and I just wondered, you know, for me, how comfortable am I? Just how comfortable am I? Do I think I'm just, oh, I'm pretty much like Jesus? Or do I understand how far I am from the perfection of Christ? Now, we all agree. We all say, well, we look at Hollywood, we look at the movie stars, and we say, well, how dumb can you get? Think that fame and fortune and money and all these things are going are gonna to make life worth living. And we look at them, and I mean, that's the epitome of that whole lifestyle uh, in, in American lifestyle in excess is Hollywood. And they commit suicide, and they have married, and they get divorced, and I don't know how many times, and, and they're in drug rehab, and all this stuff, and they got everything they want, and we say, well, that's obvious. Come on, wake up. We say it's the high things that count. It's the great things that count. The deep things that count. The conformity of my life and the character of image of Jesus Christ. That's what counts. But the question this morning, if we understand that, do we aspire to it? Do I truly aspire to that? Or do I just recognize the fact? Do we aspire to it to the point that we start beginning to realize that reality? See, I'm not going to realize the reality of anything that I don't aspire to. I don't aspire to be a brain surgeon. I'll guarantee you one thing, I'm never going to be a brain surgeon. Now somebody, and I'm glad somebody aspires to be a brain surgeon because there's times, there may be some time in my life, I'm glad to have a brain surgeon. 
shaking hands with Mr. Parkinson. Uh, somebody figured out that if you lay a person down on the table, wide awake, drill a hole in their head, and poke probes down into the brain at a certain point, it'll help Parkinson's. Now this is all wide awake because they say, okay, they, they take the probe and they put a little bit and it's okay, now move your hand and move your arm, do this stuff, and, and they see if it's still shaking or not, and they adjust all this stuff while you're awake. Now the brain don't have any pain sensors in it, but I don't think drilling through the head gonna nothing lovely, but anyhow, they do that. Alright? But I never aspired to do that. So I'm never going to be able to. Somebody does. And they get the job done. And it's a tremendous help to people that suffer from Parkinson's. God didn't save us just to save us. He saved us from in order to save us to. Someone said, God didn't bring the children of Israel out of Egypt just to deliver them from Egypt. He brought them out to Mount Sinai. He brought them out from Egypt to bring them to commitment. And that's exactly what God does to us. He doesn't bring us out just to bring us out. Our congregation, if that was the case, we were just delivered to bring us out, rest assured our congregation would be an extremely carnal congregation. So I know that we know that that's not the case. To bring us out, just to bring us out, does not bring victory in Christ. Romans 8.29 says that he saved us to be conformed into the image of Christ. That's why we're saved. That's where we're supposed to be headed. That's where we're supposed to be aspiring for. We're not supposed to be just floating along. We're not supposed to be just whatever. We're supposed to be focused on becoming something more than we are. If we're going to get there. And we cannot aspire to appetites and aspirations at the same time. I can't do that. You can't do it. You can't fulfill the lusts of your flesh and fulfill the will of God at the same time. It's impossible. You can't do it. So I have to decide whether I'm going to be satisfied with slopping around in the mud and the weeds or whether I'm going to launch out into the deep. In other words, we may have to 
do something a little different than we've always done. And it's interesting, in this passage in Luke 5, after they got out of, <clears throat> pardon me, out of the slop and the mud and the weeds, and they got out into the deep, Jesus said, now you're going to catch men. This is how you're going to catch men. And the thought occurred to me as I meditated upon this, is that the requirement for God's people for evangelism? Can we evangelize the world slopping around in the mud and the weeds with a shallow relationship with God? Is that possible? I don't think anybody's going to be impressed. When we launch out into the deep, when we do exactly what God, Jesus told us to do, when we do different than the easy way, maybe we'll catch men. So then the question comes, how do I move past my appetites into the deep things of God? Now, the preacher last Sunday told us to do something, so we're going to do it. Turn with me to Psalm 119, and we're going to go through Psalm 119, 1 to 8. Did you uh, do your assignment? Arnie says, there's just lots of, he says he's not preaching on this last Sunday, but he says a lot of deep stuff here. So I'm thinking, well, Arnie said it's deep stuff, and so we're supposed to launch out into the deep, so we're going to go some 119, date, and we're going to see what happens here. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Undefiled. What does undefiled mean? We use in English the term integrity. Blessed are those who have integrity. They are sincere. The, in, the people who are, have integrity in God's way. This is not just any way. It's God's way. In Psalm 119, this way is referred to a lot. and It's, it's talking about the way that God wants us to live. And so we need to have integrity. How can I get from the muddy to the deep? I need to have integrity. I need to... When I profess to be in God's way, I need to exercise integrity in pursuing that. I need to be sincere. I can't be too timing on God. I can't have two girlfriends. Alright? I can't say I love you and I love you too. I can't be in, in love with God. I can't be in love with the world at the same time. That lacks integrity. I can't be worshiping the God of heaven and worshiping the God of this world. I can't be half-hearted. It says you're blessed if you have integrity. If you walk, you're sincere. If I'm two-timing on God, if I'm half-hearted, I can't expect blessedness. Only thing I can expect is misery. People who, uh, and we get caught in that sometimes, we, we want the best of God and the, wants of the best of the world. We can't figure out why our life's so stinking miserable. Well, 
That's just the way it is. You're trying to do something impossible. It is simply impossible. I can't be self-seeking. I have to have a purity of intention. I have to be transparent. I have to be what I appear to be. I have to be somebody that walks the talk. Verse 2. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. Testimonies are God's commands. The definition, God's commands considered as witnesses to his character attesting to his will. That's his testimonies. And so I need to I need to conform into and be a witness of the character of God. That's what I'm going to have to do if I'm going to get out of the mud and get into the deep. I have to conform my character into his command. Now if you turn to uh, Matthew 12, 28. Uh, the question was fired at Jesus. Um, No. Hmm. I wrote that down. When they asked, uh, hmm. when they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Oh boy, now I'm stuck. Mark 12, 28. Thank you. I was looking at all four because the account's in all four places. Alright. Thank you. Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, what is the first commandment of all? Now we're talking about the testimonies and the commands of God. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. Jesus said, you're dead right. And if you follow that, you are going to be in the kingdom of God. Keep his testimonies with the whole heart. 
sincere, transparent. Do I aspire to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Verse 3. They also do no iniquity. They walk in His ways. Iniquity. And I'm not sure if this is coincidental or not. But it's like inequity. Something that uneven. Something that is unjust. Something that is wicked. Something that... Somebody is getting a raw deal. Somebody is getting a raw deal. Whether God's getting a raw deal because of the bad we're doing, or maybe somebody else around us is getting a raw deal, something's not right. Something's not level. Something, somebody got the short end of the stick. They also do no iniquity. You got it level. You got it even. You got it right. Everybody gets a fair shake. God gets a fair shake if you want to call it if you want to say it in that term. They walk in his ways. The opposite of iniquity is pure heart. True and faithful, unselfish. Basically, again, back conforming our life into the character of Christ. Everything was level. Everything was even. Everything was proper. Everything was in its proper proportion. God got the respect. Man got the respect. They do no iniquity. They walk in His ways. Aspiration. Aspiration. Do I stop? Do I consider? Is God getting what he deserves from me? My fellow man getting what he deserves from me. My family getting what they deserve from me. My wife getting what she deserves from me. Do I love selfishly? Am I slopping around in the mud, in the weeds? Verse 4. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Diligently. You know, if we're going to be blessed, if we're going to be what God wants us to be, we have to understand that it takes earnest and sustained effort. We got to be serious about it, and we got to put we got to put effort into it in the long haul. Nobody got to heaven by osmosis, hanging around some Christian. You never got there floating in a boat. Only thing happens when you're sloughing off is you go downstream. That's that's it. We have to understand that we need to pursue God. We need to. Uh, 
we have to understand that if we're going to aspire to something great, it's not going to come natural like appetites do. Appetites come natural. Aspirations take work. We have to apply it. What's the, what's the, uh, the sign say on the door? Come on. Okay. You have to work for success. The writer of the psalmist says, You have commanded us to do it. You've commanded us to put sustained effort in it. But you know what? There's something natural about us that doesn't want to do that. And the psalmist cries out and he says, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Oh, I just wish this would come natural. I, I just... I have so many defects and I have so many failures and I have so many these things that other people don't see and I, I and and I, I want to be like God wants me to be and, and, and he just cries out, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. I don't want this to be a one time event. I want it I, I want it all the time. I want it to be a habit. They went, ah, you know, you're talking about habits, habits, or, you know, well, habits, a habit. What well, good habits? Longing to be directed by the statutes of God. I can't, fit, I can't think of a better habit. But he addresses his own natural inclinations not to stick with it. Then we go to verse 6. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. <clears throat> we look at some of our government leaders and some of the shenanigans that goes on and we say, well, it's, they call it damage control. You know, something happens... Uh, something don't work or somebody makes a big mistake and well they go into damage control well it's probably shame control uh, if you really think about it and that don't always happen in the government uh, it happens right at home it happens in our own personal life shame control <clears throat> you know what Saul was obsessed with Shame control. That's what he's obsessed with. Why was he obsessed with shame control? Because he did not have respect to the commandments of God. That's why he was in the shame control mode all the time. But when I respect God's commandments... I, I steer myself sh clear of shame control. I don't have to be ashamed. I don't have to worry. 
But the question comes to me, it says here, not that I just respect unto thy commandments, he says I have respect to all thy commandments. Now that's a challenge. Am I consistent? Am I all around? Do I have respect to all commandments? That's a lifetime proposition. But where I don't, where I don't respect the commandments of God, I will experience shame. That's just the way it is. Not just shame. I will, I will experience personal shame. I will experience shame before others. I will experience shame before God. And I asked myself as I sat in my study, Dennis Martin, can you look God in the eye? It's interesting to watch people watch their eyes. Somebody's pulling off some shenanigans they're supposed to, and you ask them, so what happened? And, and they'll start off in their little story, and their eyes will drop, and then they're telling the rest of the story or whatever, and... and And I look God in the eye. Will I eventually, at the end, look God in the eye? We will we'll, we will all be there. First John two twenty eight says, And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Two alternatives. Confidence. Now I have a little, I have to confess here this morning, I have a little problem figuring out how I can be have confidence before Almighty God. I, I assume here that, I mean, we have to faith that this is true, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I can look God in the eye to judgment. Or, I look at the floor. Then shall I not be ashamed when I respect unto thy commandments. Verse 7. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgment. Praise. What kind of praise glorifies God? What kind of praise does God appreciate? Uh, we were talking about a couple different kind of praise here. Brother Mark was saying... Uh, but as we aspire to be conformed to the image of Christ gives validity to our praise. He said, 
when I have learned thy righteous judgment. Okay, if we're going to learn something, we're going to be in school, we're going to have to do our lessons, aren't we? We're going to have to do our lessons, we're going to have to read the book. If I don't aspire to learn, guess what my alternatives are? Failed tests. Isn't that right, children? Don't learn the lessons? Failed tests. <clears throat> How much do you and I know about God and His righteous judgments? So are we in chapter 1 of the book? Uh, are we in the preface? Where are we at in the book? Am I satisfied that I know everything that God needs to tell me about my life in the book? Oh. Brothers and sisters, we haven't even started. We haven't even started. Everything that God would have hold for us to learn. But we got to be wanting to learn. We have to aspire to learn. And then verse 8. I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. I will keep. Aspiration requires consecration. I will. Will. Now you know and I know we can't do it on our own just because I said I will. That's not going to carry us. But I will do what? Keep thy statutes. I will obey. As I obey, as I set my will to follow the will of God and I obey, then I receive the assistance of God in my life. I will begin to achieve the high and the great things that God wants for me. But only as I obey and conform my life into the image of Christ can I have that success and can I experience that success. And, 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 and you know, the psalmist says, I... I I will keep thy statutes. God, please help me. I think of Brother Warren. When he's preaching, and I know all the time, but uh, when he's preaching, you know the sermon's over. When he says, uh, may God help us. That's what he says. Legitimate? Absolutely. Please don't forsake me. You know, because of our past sinfulness, God could justifiably say, okay, because of all that, you're on your own. But his mercy and his love and his compassion and his kindness reaches out to you, he reaches out to me, he don't want us in the mud, he don't want us in the muck, he don't want us in the weeds, he want us in the deep things of God aspiring to do His will. 
Will we be content to wade around in the muddy shallows, or will we launch out into the deep things of God and aspire to explore its resources by casting in our nets at the invitation of Christ? <laughs>